Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. So I was prepared to write off a literal lifelong battle with insomnia to just being a part of doing more than 30 years of morning television and radio. Well, when I dug a little deeper, it turned out there was far more to learn. So in this series, we try to help people fix their sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken. And maybe we stumble upon some answers together. You're about to meet my new friend, Dr. Eric Prather, sleep scientist at UCSF, studying the causes and consequences of insufficient sleep and carrying out interventions to improve sleep among people with insomnia. As our history keeps getting written by the stupid virus, I found a study that Eric was part of a few years back that put an interesting twist on research into sleep and our resistance to a much more common and less insidious virus, the common cold. And Dr. Michael Grandner is back from the University of Arizona as well. He's talking about the latest science from the sleep world, too. But let's get you started here with Dr. Eric Prather. Eric, everybody that's on the show, whether they are, you know, the lead guitarist for a rock band or a world-class neuroscientist, everybody gets the same first question, and it is this. How did you sleep last night? Oh, gosh. You know, it's... I have two little kids, and so I feel like I haven't had a great night's sleep in the eight years in which I've had kids. And so I'm down here. I'm down here in 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 Southern California. I, I live up in San Francisco, but I'm down here in in Southern California with my in-laws. And so it's a you know it's a new, different bed, different room. Um, you know they do get to watch the kids a little bit more in the morning. So I do get to sleep in a little bit more than usual. But uh, you know without fail, my uh, four-year-old son Jackson you know, wakes us up at around four in the morning. Um, and that has been the case for the entirety of his life. And so it's, last night was no different. Um, I'm a little bit used to it, but, um, you know, that's, 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 that's a little snapshot of my life and my sleeping. So as a scientist who studies sleep for a living, I mean, are you tempted to try and shift his sleep or at four years old, is, is he too young for that? Uh, he's not too young for it. I mean, certainly. So, I mean, so, so I do study sleep and I, I do treat uh, patients with sleep disorders, um, but adults. And, you know, it, as much as I'd like to think it, uh, uh, kids are not little adults. Um, and so the sleep system is a little bit different. The behavioral techniques are different. And so I, I uh, try to separate my, my work and my family life in, in that domain. I mean, we certainly... Um, you know, did a better job with our older son who, who sleeps through the night, no problem. But our younger one, I think it's, you know, part of a kind of sleeping in the same room as his brother and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and not having the same kind of structure that, uh, our older son had just because of, uh, out of necessity. And so, um, you know, I'm tempted, but I, I, I would defer to my pediatric sleep colleagues, um, uh, for, for that, uh, assistance. Yeah, I can tell you right now that Linnell Schneeberg over at Connecticut Children's Medical Center is listening to this right now. And she's going, okay, memo to self, write Eric an email. Um, but, I mean, <laughs> how do you navigate knowing that you're going to wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning more often than not? What, what do you do to compensate for that either on the back end or, or how do you deal with that so that you're able to function cognitively? Well, you know, I mean, uh, it's uh – it, it can be challenging on some days and other days it's it's uh, not not so bad. I mean, certainly um, I'm by nature a little bit of an early riser. So it's not, you know, I'm up around six anyway. And so it's it's not too bad. I don't have a hard time getting back to sleep. I think it's just the disturbance. But, uh, you know, as we know, um, uh, 
our our sleep drive diminishes across the night. We we have you know lighter sleep in the morning, and so you know a lot of people are waking up uh, earlier, and and that's that's part of life. I mean, I I guess it's a I you know I try to make sure that I get to bed at a, a decent hour. I I'm certainly not someone who burns the, the midnight oil at all. And so, you know, I still get my, uh, I'm, I'm a sufficient, sufficient amount of sleep, um, you know, despite, you know, intermittent interruptions by, uh, young little ones. I'm fascinated by, and, and I, this is something that I keep talking to various researchers about is the difference between research in the sleep world versus research in pretty much every other area of science, especially nutrition, where there will be a study that comes out this week that says X food is bad for you. And then there'll be a study, you know, 18 hours later that says, hey, that study that said it's bad for you, it's garbage because uh, here's why it's great for you. And then there'll be another study that comes out a couple of days later that says, no, no, both studies are wrong. Here's what the truth is, where with sleep, it seems to be moving forward on a pretty balanced, steady trajectory. And one of the things that I loved is that Michael Grandner alerted me to a study that you had done. Uh, and some of the, the data in this study goes back, what, 10 or 15 years now. But it is still just as valid as it was the day that it came out. And you could make the argument that while the world is in the middle of a global pandemic, your study with some data that is 10 or 15 years old is quite possibly more relevant now than it ever was. I'm talking in particular about the study that you did talking about uh, your susceptibility to a cold and the link to how much sleep you get. Can you hit the treetops on that for people who don't know about this study yet? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, broadly, you know, we, we believe that sleep is kind of intimately related to our immune system, right? And that's been kind of well documented in animals and humans, and we're still trying to uncover some of the, the specifics about that. But, you know, typically people um, when we study this, we study you know some very specific aspects of the immune system. Say how is sleep related to T cell functioning or B cell functioning? Um, but you know the immune system is you know incredibly orchestrated, right? It's a symphony, not just um, and 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 so you know really trying to understand kind of clinical outcomes that require all aspects of the immune system to work together to protect us is is really important and really kind of hits home some of the 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 you know the the meaning of this sleep immune sleep disease uh, risk um, kind of connection, um, and so you know in most cases though like diseases develop over a long period of time, and so there aren't that many instances where we can actually look at um, and control exposures. Um, but that was what we did here. So we we're really interested in sleep and, and susceptibility to infectious illness. And um, there aren't many ways to study that safely in humans, uh, with the exception of working with uh, my friend and colleague, Sheldon Cohen, at Carnegie Mellon University, where he's kind of over his uh, career done a series of um, viral challenge studies, uh, cold studies, Pittsburgh cold studies is what what, what they're called. Um, and And so in this instance, we were interested in sleep and, and whether someone would get a cold uh, if they were exposed to uh, a known quantity of rhinovirus. And so what we did was we uh, measured 
people's sleep uh, using wrist actigraphy. So, you know, it's a souped up Fitbit to give us estimates of how much sleep people were getting and how fragmented their sleep was. And we did that over a week, a week's time. Um, then they came into the laboratory uh, and uh, we squirted live rhinovirus into their nose. Um, and so and then to uh, track their symptoms and whether they developed a cold, they were quarantined in a in a hotel uh, down there in uh, in the city of Pittsburgh and and uh, tracked over around a you know it depends on the study but like five to six day period uh, where you know we uh, you know culture their their nasal fluids to see if the virus is replicating and then we do a couple of um, tasks. Uh, to get an estimate of, of true symptoms um, versus just kind of asking people if, if they're feeling sick. And so um, those two things are, the first was um, we would have a, a lowly research assistant uh, collect tissues uh, throughout the day and then they'd put them in a plastic bag and then they'd weigh the bag and subtract out the weight of an empty bag in the tissue and you'd get an actual estimate of uh, a nasal secretion, mucus secretion throughout the day. I think that's how you identify whether or not you are a lowly lab assistant is if you're the one that collects the tissues for something like this, you're the lowly lab assistant, right? You're like that, the red shirt on Star Trek. That's, that's right. That's right. Um, and then and then we measured whether uh, people had uh, the, the degree to which they had nasal congestion. And so um, we would have people, uh, you know, every single day. Uh, before they got the virus and after, just so that we could control for size of um, kind of nostril size and, and things like that, um, we would have them put their head back and we put a dye into their nose and time how long that dye got to the back of their throat. It turns out this dye has like a, a, a taste to it. And so people could, could, you know, we could see it, but they could also tell us, um, you know, when it got to the back of their throat. And the longer it took, the more congested they were. And so if people were infected, meaning that the virus was replicating, um, and they had symptoms that met uh, a certain threshold, they were deemed to have a biologically verified cold. And so the study ends up becoming just, you know, yes, no, you have a cold or you don't. Um, and what we found was, uh, lo and behold, and consistent with everything that we think about the importance of sleep and protecting us from infectious disease is that people who slept less, on average, were uh, significantly more likely to uh, develop a cold. And this is after adjusting for a whole host of, you know, potential confounders that um, we also know put people at risk. And uh, and then when we kind of bend out the um, you know, the amount of sleep that people were getting just to get an estimate of how strong this effect was, it turned out that people who slept six or fewer hours uh, per night were about four times more likely to develop a cold than people who slept more than seven hours. And so, you know, it, it seemed like, you know, this is consistent with uh, lots of other studies, but is the first kind of um, experimental model to support um, sleep being a critical and independent uh, risk factor for um, developing uh, a cold following an, an infection. And that's a pretty heavy number. I mean, and and just to make sure that everybody got that and, and it didn't go by too fast, more than four times more likely to catch cold and the only variable uh, in, factored into that four, 4.2 times was how much sleep you were getting. And and I I keep finding these nuggets, whether it's things like colds or whether it's various cognitive functions or things like that, that I try to hold up for people and say, look, here are the numbers. Um, and, and this is one of those that just, it just kind of whacks you in the face. Now, I, I guess the, the logical question from 
where we are today versus where we were when this study first came out. Can we extrapolate anything that you found with this study and come to any conclusions about COVID from it? Uh, you know, I mean, I think so. I, I mean, there's a couple of things that I think are are interesting about that. Um, I I do think that um, you know sleep does play a role in this this relationship, and there's no reason to think that it wouldn't be the case for uh, the the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus. Um, I think one thing that is important to point out in this using this data from this study is that, you know, of course, we, you know, squirted rhinovirus into people's noses. And what's fascinating is amount of sleep did, was not a significant predictor of who ended up getting infected. Right. It, it you know, it, it, it always blows my mind that like we, you know, took people and we put the virus in their nose and there was still a portion of people that just don't get infected and we don't really know why there are some factors that we think um, across those studies that make a difference things like smoking status um, seems to, to you know smokers are more likely to get infected um, you know and that probably has you know relations to kind of wear and tear on the system and, and things like that but um, but you know so it was really predicting who ended up developing symptoms uh, bad enough to be deemed having a, a cold and so I think what it does speak to is, you know, obviously the best uh, predictor of, of infections to, of COVID-19 is um, exposure to the virus and, you know, lack of social distancing, last, last, lack of face mask wearing, those types of things. Um, but, you know, it may play a role in among people who become infected. Does it uh, end up leading to a more severe uh, disease you know, severity that, you know, maybe requires intervention that uh, other people don't need, right, that like maintain being asymptomatic or very mild symptoms. Um, and so I think that might be where uh, sleep is, um, you know, puts people in some level of, of risk or, or protection. Uh, and, it, you know, and one thing that we can't tell from the study is to the, you know, which I think is relevant to, to COVID-19 is the role of sleep in recovery, um, from from these um, infections and, and certainly uh, our, the study that we did doesn't doesn't speak to that because it wasn't something that we continued collecting once people were in the the hotel though it's you know obviously something that I very much regret <laughs> not doing at, at this point but it, it that wasn't the goal of the study. Yeah, and I mean, you can't really do a – well, or maybe you can and I just haven't heard about it yet. You can't – it becomes difficult to do a study like this with something more serious than the common cold because if you, if you ask for a bunch of volunteers and they're going to volunteer to get a cold, that's one thing. But to voluntarily get people to expose themselves to uh, COVID-19 with the exception of that group that's making – all kinds of headlines this week in Alabama, all these kids in Alabama that are they, they're exposing themselves to the virus and, and whoever gets it gets some kind of cash payout, which is terrifying to me. But there's ethical, obviously, considerations to voluntarily giving people something as serious as COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I think that the one place where, um, you know, this sleep immune story uh, is is particularly relevant um, to COVID-19 is in what we know about sleep and vaccinations, 
um, and and like this sleep and susceptibility to infections and and the common cold in this case, you know, there's pretty strong evidence in my view that that sleep and potentially circadian factors are related to vaccination responses as well. Oh, see, this is okay. See, here's the new wrinkle. Tell me more about that because sleep and vaccination responses hadn't even crossed the radar for me. What's what's the skinny on that? Yes, I mean, there's been um, you know probably you know six six or so studies, um, separate cohorts that have, you know, looked at whether kind of sleep measured out in the world by self-report or by wrist actigraphy or sleep deprivation in the laboratory um, predicts antibody responses to vaccines, various vaccines from the influenza vaccine to hepatitis A to hepatitis B. Um, we've um, done some of this work both in influenza and in hepatitis B, um, uh, the, the, the first study was in midlife adults, um, 40 to 60 years old, where, um, you know, at, at one point in time, uh, you know, you could find people that were naive to the hepatitis B vaccine. It turns out now when kids are born, a lot of them, most of them end up getting the hepatitis B vaccine really early in life. But, um, you know, that wasn't always the case. And so we were able to recruit people who had never been exposed to this novel virus um, in the, the form of the vaccine. And so, you know, we measured their their sleep using wrist actigraphy over seven days, and then we they went through the hepatitis B vaccination series. And in that case, we found that, you know, people who slept less, just like with the cold study, um, were, um, you know, created, generated fewer um, antigen-specific antibodies to the vaccine. And in fact, um, you know, though we don't ever expose people to hepatitis B to see if they're really truly protected because, of course, of ethical concerns and things like that. Um, you know, the CDC does have guidelines for how many antibodies, you know, you need to generate to be considered you know, clinically protected. And when we followed up with these participants um, six months after uh, the, the final vaccination series, we found that um, people that slept, you know, again, kind of six or fewer hours um were, you know, nearly 12 times more likely to be left unprotected um, than people who, uh, you know, slept more. And so, uh, you know, again, it's a case that, you know, people that don't get enough sleep uh, might be those at risk or at least those that aren't going to be uh, what we think of as um, protected out in the world if they were to come into contact with hepatitis B. Um, more recently, uh, in a study published just uh, a couple months ago, we looked at the influenza vaccine. And what in that study, we were, you know, particularly interested in wondering kind of when does sleep matter in the vaccination journey um, for uh, promoting antibody to that vaccine? And, and so in this case, we measured sleep uh, over 13 days. And this was just by self-report um, uh, diaries. And uh, but we measured it, you know, and so and then the vaccine fell like you know, a cup, you know, four day in the fourth day or the third or fourth day of the of the diary session. And so we were able to look at the days prior to getting the vaccine and the days following. Um, and in our data, it looked like, you know, people who slept fewer hours um, on the on the two days prior to the vaccine were the ones that had fewer antibodies um, later on. So that that's, you know, those nights seem to be more strongly related to um kind of how many antibodies they produce to the influenza vaccine. And of course, um, this has to be, you know, replicated and, and, and all these kind of things. But it does speak to 
um, whether there's a role for understanding and, and assessing sleep as part of vaccination policy, right? So if we know that people are really short sleepers, maybe they're ones that um, need, you know, additional titers measured to see if they need boosters to vaccines. Or, you know, if it turns out that there's a particular time, like say it's the, the night after you get a vaccine, that, that's really important. Um, you know, telling people when they get their vaccine that their vaccination, that they, you know, you know, try to try their best to kind of get a good night's sleep. Or um, if it's the night before, kind of sending an alert to someone like, hey, you know, we know that sleep is important for, for vaccines, you know, try to get a good night's sleep before you come in. Um, you know, I think importantly, in no way am I suggesting that if people are poor sleepers, they shouldn't get vaccines because that, uh, you know, regardless of how people sleep, vaccines are uh, incredibly powerful preventative tools and, um, you know, should be taken very seriously. But uh, but, the, you know, that's um, I think that's an important policy consideration for um, for this research, which oftentimes we don't uh, have as clearly. I assume it must be frustrating for clinicians, especially, who sit there and go, there is so much that would be improved. For example, you talk about vaccinations, things like that, that if only people would pay more attention to their sleep. But I, I hear from so many people that and it even comes in the conversations about COVID and everything else where people are talking about masks and all these things. And when I when I talk to people about, you know, there is a, a visible boost to your immune system, a trackable boost that you can get from making sure that you're getting an appropriate amount of sleep, people feel like, uh, well, yeah, I can do that, but I'm going to throw a mask on because I feel like a mask is a bigger... And, and I'm sure that... From a, a, a soup to nuts perspective on it, yes, if you're going to pick one over the other, I would probably opt for the mask over making sure that I've gone from six and a half hours of sleep to seven and a half hours. Sure. But there seems to be this pushback from people with all of the things that are impacted by sleep that – by virtue of just going to sleep, you're not really actively doing anything. You know, there's an act involved in putting on a face mask. Um, we're going to sleep. You're not really doing anything. So people feel like that's not really a step they need to take because that'll just happen when it happens. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, <laughs> I, I'd like to think, I mean, so one, I think if you had to choose, definitely wear a mask over an extra hour of sleep. Um, I think any epidemiologist would, uh, support that. Uh, yeah. I, I, I do think that, um, you know, I'd like to think that the, the, the dialogue around sleep has, you know, improved, um, over time. I mean, I, you know, I've, I felt very fortunate to, to be doing this work at a time where it's, it's more part of the conversation. And I, and I think some of it is, you know, a function of the research, but I think also a function of like improvements in technology for tracking people's interest in kind of optimizing their health and, and, you know, consumer products kind of capturing the imagination of, uh, many people across the country and the world. And, and so, you know, sleep is something that, you know, people are looking to kind of hack um, and gives us an opportunity to, you know, provide some kind of science-based techniques for um, improving people's sleep. But I, you know, I do hear you. It's it it is not as um, active as people, you know, people think it's not as active, right? I mean, we obviously 
are on the same page with it's incredibly active and it 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 is something that is um you know part of you know part of our our dna and our 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 uh, kind of our human experience that has been um conserved across millennia because of how important it is for survival and for um kind of thriving as a species um you know i think one way in which you know i've dealt with this you know clinically and and with the public is really talking about all the active things that people can do to optimize their sleep um based on all the sleep science and you know this is obviously you know, particularly true for my patients who have insomnia, but, you know, people that are just poor sleepers in general, like things that people can do to take an active role in um, improving their sleep. Though, you know, I will say that one of the things that I, I try to impart to people who are worried about their sleep is, you know, sleep is something um, that people never even wonder how it works until it stops working. And then they, you know, become really obsessed with making it happen. But, you know, sleep is not something that that we make happen. Sleeping sleep is something that comes to us that kind of washes over us. And so a lot of that trying to make happen is often ends up being barriers to something that is so natural. Yeah, I've heard someone say before that the, the moment you're trying to sleep, you're defeating you're, you're defeating the purpose right out of the gate. Yep. 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 So, um, yeah, I got to admit to a certain amount of uh, uh, of good natured stalking when it comes to you, because um, before Michael Grandner mentioned your name to me about this study, uh, I watched the you were already on my radar for a long time as someone I wanted to talk to because of the video that you did for Wired, where you talk. And I feel like that video has got to be almost a year old now where you were talking to. Uh, people at five different stages of life and you were talking to them about sleep. Everyone from a a 10-year-old up to a a graduate student and then a sleep expert, this variety of people. And and it was interesting as a fan of that video, uh, listening to the things that people learned about sleep from talking to you. But I always wondered, did what did you learn about people's perceptions of sleep from everything that was involved in doing that video. What did you take away from that process? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, thank you for bringing that up. It it was so, yeah. So I think we made that back in November of last year. And, um, it was a great opportunity because I was actually a fan of the five level series, um, before they had even, you know, asked me to do it. And, um, you know, the thing that is so, it's such a challenging like marathon to make that um, because we did it all in one day and um, you know there was a lot more footage that didn't make you know that was on the the cutting room floor but um, the the biggest challenge was that you you didn't know the people that were coming didn't know what the topic was and so there was no way to prep for their responses Um, and so there's i you know, I'm admittedly, I'm not someone that has like rewatched it. So <laughs> because I, I don't like watching or hearing myself. Uh, but <laughs> but I remember that the set, you know, so, you know, laid out right. You like it was like a eight year old kid and then a teenager and then a college student and then a graduate student and then another uh, sleep researcher. Um, and so it was the I believe it was the um, the teenager who 
took like this crazy long, like six hour nap every day. Yes. And I was, I mean, I was concerned for his health because I was like, this sounds so, I mean, he was like, he was really serious. And I, 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 it was just, it made me think about kind of how, you know, people try to navigate the world and fit sleep in, in whichever way that they can. Um, you know, for him, I remember that it was, you know, it was like he would get up early to go to school and then, you know, he would try to do it, um, later in the, in, in the day or something like that. And it was just, it was such a strange thing. And it it gave me, it made me, gave me pause to think about kind of the variety of the people that, um, are out in the world and are trying to navigate the, the sleep landscape. But then also it made me think about, um, you know, probably how poorly we capture those, that variety in research, right? Like when I think about the studies that we run, you know, we're, we're running a laboratory study right now trying to understand the relationship between sleep and, and racial discrimination and, and cardiovascular risk. And, you know, we, we do like a very thorough screening of people's sleep and they have to show us that they get a sufficient amount of sleep before they come into the lab, that it's, you know, that the schedule is stable or they're, they're out, you know, because we want to understand our, our experimental mechanism and how that affects sleep. But, um, you know, that, that cuts out a lot of the population and, um, you know, that's, that's troubling for me when we try to then take kind of the findings, whether it be about immune system, the immune system or mental health or, or cognition and try to push those inferences onto a larger population. Um, and, and so I think that, that was definitely kind of a broad thing that I, that I took away from that experience. Um, also that, you know, people, uh, knew a lot about sleep, you know I mean? Like the, the college student, I almost felt like she could be doing the, the, uh, the, the <laughs> wired thing. I mean, she, you know, she, she, she knew all the terms and I mean, again, she didn't know what the topic was about and it was, uh, it was really fascinating. It was really fun, um, exhausting, but I, you know, I, I've gotten a lot of good feedback. I get, you know, emails now and then from people that'll watch it, uh, you know, often, like in the early morning hours, which, you know, they, they think is so funny, uh, because they can't sleep. And then, um, but you know, but you know, also from those emails, I've gotten a lot of kind of really off the wall questions that people are really trying to seek answers to. And as a clinician, um, I think there's a lot of, uh, people out there that, that, um, could really benefit from, from, uh, more researchers and clinicians getting invested in sleep. Because it's it's a universal experience, and but it can certainly go off the rails in in a myriad of ways. Uh, that you know what you just gave me the absolute perfect place to wrap it up, Eric. That was uh, such a treat. I'm so glad we finally got a chance to connect, uh, and and I'm interested in keeping an eye on what you're working on down the road, uh, particularly this this study that you've just been talking about. Because uh, you know, sort of as the follow up episode to the one we did a couple weeks back with Dana Johnson, um, talking about the 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 disparities in sleep across racial groups. Um, it, it's interesting that that's a thread that seems to be going across science in a variety of different ways right now. So I'm, I'm excited to see the results of that when it comes along. But in the meantime, uh, thanks for having time for this today. I, I appreciate you making room for us. No, yeah, absolutely. Uh, sleep is a, I, I really see sleep as like a social justice issue. And, uh, you know, I think that's a, a really important uh, perspective for people to take uh, across science, but um, sleep included, because uh, though it's something everything, it's something that everyone needs, it's not something everyone gets uh, equally, and uh, 
you know, a lot of that has to do with kind of upstream factors that, uh, you know, have, uh, there's a lot of room for improvement. So, but yeah, it was great, great to, to chat with you and, uh, you know, anytime. That's Dr. Eric Prather from UCSF. Links to the specific studies we talked about and his Wired video as well. Waiting for you on our website at thesnoozebutton.com. Now we move to the second part of this week's episode. My friend Dr. Michael Grandner is back from the University of Arizona. All right, so in honor of your 74th appearance on the show, I think, or something like that. Something like that. Did you sleep last night? I slept great last night, actually. Ooh, okay, good. Does this mean the forest fires are away from your door now? Is that is that is that how that works? Yeah, I mean, so it's been a couple of weeks now. Now they're up to over a hundred thousand acres burned, and um, but it's they're saying it's mostly contained. And honestly, um, after the first week or so, which was kind of scary, um, the winds changed, and most of the most of the areas that were at risk were in the other direction, which is a bit more remote, which is good. And I think so far they've been able to save, I mean, I'm not seeing on the news lots of reports of lost structures. They, they really went after, uh, went after it aggressively to protect homes and, and even though there were a number of evacuations needed, you know, the, the firefighters did a fantastic job and, and, you know, even as the fire grew, they kept it from uh, getting, getting to a place where there were a lot of people. So that was good. No, no, it's, it's really good. And the news is the news has been good for the past few days about it. And uh, it's still a little smoky in the morning, but um, that's about it. So, and this is interesting too, because I, I mean, there are a whole ton of people, whether it's a, a scenario similar to what you're going through, where there's natural disasters happening or the other disasters that are happening all over the world, like COVID-19. Because there's nothing going on right now. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing. The world's a very calm place right now. Uh, dumb question, and, and this may be too much of a layperson question, although I suspect that there are a few things that fall into that category. Where's the line between... I'm having a rough couple of nights falling asleep versus I have insomnia. Where's where does that line come in? So that is actually a fantastic question. There's an easy answer and a hard answer. So the easy answer is um, something uh, called the rule of threes. So there's so there's three things to think about. Either um, so first of all, if it's happening three nights a week or more that's where you start worrying. If it's happening one or two nights a week, you know, it's, it's, it's not in the category usually of something to worry about unless it's really impacting you and then we can do with that. So three nights a week, if it takes you 30 minutes to fall asleep during the, uh, in the beginning of the night, or you're up for at least 30 minutes during the night. Um, so, so if it's taking you at least 30 minutes to fall asleep, trying, I mean, if you're just sitting there reading, that doesn't count. Um, or if you're awake during the middle of the night for at least 30 minutes um, where you're trying to sleep and you can't sleep, the 30, 30, three, three nights a week. Um, if you've crossed that line, um, I would pretty confidently say that what you've got is an insomnia versus just some difficulty sleeping. Now, um, there's two places where they get, this gets complicated. For a diagnosis of an insomnia disorder, technically there's another three involved and that's three months. So once it's been going on for three months, then we can, you know, usually would get a, a diagnosis of insomnia. But what if it hasn't been three months? So we would call that acute insomnia or, or new onset insomnia 
or short-term insomnia, but that's just as real as anything else. Most of those cases might resolve on their own, but some of them don't and they become chronic. Um, so the first wrinkle is how long has it been? Um, if you're starting to experience problems and it's been 30 minutes a night, at least three nights a week, you might have an acute insomnia even if it's just new and now's a good time to intervene on it. Um, so that's one wrinkle. Another place where this becomes complicated is who decides on 30? So like, all right, so this is where the academics start splitting hairs of, well, okay, so if 30 minutes is bad, is 29 minutes good? How about 29 minutes and 59 seconds? Is that good? You know, so, <laughs> so like, it then becomes like, like the best before date on the milk. Right, right. And like so if it's I, sort if of I like, guzzle this down before 1159, I'm fine. <laughs> at, at, at midnight, it turns into sour cream. Exactly. See, so like, so like real people understand that 30, it's, it's, you know, nature doesn't work that way. Like, oh my gosh, you cross 30, the world is now different. No, it's it's not a threshold, it's, it's a rough guide. So if it's taking you 25, 27 minutes and it's bothersome, good enough. You know, if it's taking you 32 minutes and you're fine with it and it doesn't bother you, maybe don't worry about it. Um, but that's usually a rule of thumb. So, so 30 minutes um, in the beginning or middle of the night, at least three nights a week, and to make it chronic, uh, three months. So that's that's sort of the rule of thumb we use in clinic. Okay, so enough of what's been on my mind. Um, I, I know you are a person that watches emerging sleep science like a hawk. So talk to me about the stuff that's kind of crossed the radar for you since the last time we got together. Yeah, so there's there's two things in particular that have been around for the last week or so that have really been on my mind. Um, and, and there's two other things that I'll talk about too. But first, first the two studies. First is um, a, a study, I forget where it's from, but it was, uh, it was reported uh, um, where it wasn't sleep scientists involved. It was actually computer scientists. And these computer scientists were um, developing artificial intelligence networks and, and using complex machine learning algorithms where they're trying to teach computers how to learn complex relationships but, uh, among information. And so, so for uh, machine learning sounds very fancy, but basically what it means is how do you teach a system to learn new information? And a lot of times those rules could be relatively simple. Like if you see this, do this. When comparing two different things, go with the bigger one. Like there's rules you can put into a system that you can, you can help it learn, right? Um, and so machine learning itself and AI actually can sometimes be quite simple, but sometimes it can be insanely complex where the rules themselves are not set in stone and the rules can end up writing themselves by figuring out what they are. So you have these really complex systems. And, and what this study showed was that, or what these researchers found was that um, in the, even in this computer system, when they got to a level of complexity in the AI where it had to learn very complex relationships by sets of rules, what they found was if they let the machine just run, it would eventually start becoming inefficient. Um, but if they introduced sleep, to the system where they where they um, had it stop for a period of time and then start again, um, it actually became way more efficient and had much uh, had less error in the system. 
And what that shows that, you know, we say like machines never need sleep. You know, that's the, you know, robots never need to sleep. Well, it turns out it might be the case that as we develop more complicated machines, they might need sleep too. And it, it, it really gets to the point that we are learning as humans something that evolution and biology figured out a very, very long time ago that once you get to a certain level of complexity, you can't be maximally efficient constantly all the time. That the idea of the rest activity rhythm um, is that might be an inherent requirement of complex systems. Like maybe complex systems, uh, once they reach a certain point, they can't just keep going. They need rest for some reason. Um, this and, reminds and me of old Windows computers that it used to be, and I don't remember if Windows 10 does this or not, because I mean, I, <laughs> you know, I have a different schedule than most people. So Windows probably looks at me and goes, what the hell is this guy doing? Um, but <laughs> old Windows computers used to, at three o'clock in the morning, seven days a week, defragment the hard drive, which was basically a process where it grabbed information from all the various places it was stored and tried to rearrange the storage so that it was more efficiently accessible the next day, which the more I think about the way you're describing it and the more defragging your hard drive you store, <laughs> it sounds like the Windows version of the glymphatic system. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting where... I don't know enough about the computer science to, to know how apt the analogy is, but it sounds about right. I mean, at least at the core, that when you have a complex system and it's engaging with other systems, whether it's your computer engaging with you or the internet or programs or whatever, and while, while these things are happening, um, there might be a level of, of, I don't know whether it's error, whether it's waste, whether it's inefficiency that gets that gets systematically introduced into the system where you systematically need to purge that in some way or refresh that in some way. Um, maybe there is no perfect way to never need sleep, uh, it, it, even, for, even for your computer. That's amazing. Okay. I see. I love this stuff. Okay. All right. What else you got? Okay. So, so <laughs> that was my mind already. So let's <laughs> see what next, what the next thing is. So that so that was the one thing I've been noodling on. The other one is a study that came out of Singapore. Um, so there's, there's a, a research group out in Singapore at, at Duke NUS at the university there, uh, led by a researcher named, uh, Mike Chi. And they do really, really cool stuff. They're often at the forefront um, and thinking creatively about sleep neuroscience. Um, and, and one of the things that they were able to do actually was to get a bunch of Fitbit data from people in Singapore and follow them through the pandemic so far um, in Singapore itself, um, where they had it's like a, probably, I think it's several thousand people that they looked at. Um, where they essentially, it was like 2,000 people, if I remember correctly, and they tracked their sleep over the, um, the course of the pandemic uh, with social distancing and lockdown. Um, and then also they compared that data to like 2019 data to see, is this trajectory different? You know, is, you know, maybe sleep is changing, but maybe sleep changes every year. So they were able to do that. And there's a few really cool things that they found. Um, First of all, that like this, this physical activity, activity rest restriction 
um, seemed to dramatically reduce how active people were. Um, but the, what was interesting to me, especially, was in the sleep. There's there's something really interesting that happened where there's lots of talk about people sleeping less, maybe, and, and having more sleep problems. But one of the things that they found was that on average, sleep was increasing. And sleep was increasing over time in such a way that sleep variability was also decreasing. So what was happening is people were sleeping more and more on average. But when you looked at how and when you plotted how much people were sleeping and you looked at the spread of those numbers, the spread was decreasing. And, you know, but you think like, well, some people are, you know, they're a little more irregular. But it turns out that signal was came from something very important that that we're seeing. It's that weekends are now weekdays and weekdays are now weekends. And actually that people might still be pretty variable about when they're going to bed and some of them might be staying up later. So that was another thing that that bedtime was has been drifting later and later for a lot of people. Um, they found that that wake time similarly was drifting a little bit later. That time in bed was is drifting up a little bit and total sleep time was sort of drifting up a little bit. But the key thing that jumped out was, you know, the, the difference between weekdays and weekends has been getting smaller and smaller. Um, and that I thought was was really interesting that, you know, we have this natural experiment where um, out in the world, People were stuck inside. They couldn't really go anywhere, um, especially in Singapore, that was very locked down. Um, and what they showed was when people were stuck inside, they moved a whole lot less. Um, but they, they ended up sleeping a little bit more. It didn't say anything about sleep quality because that, that can't, can't really measure that. But, you know, that as our schedules sort of, you know, changed, that when people were left to their own devices, actually, they actually still slept in a little bit on weekends, but not nearly as much as they used to. And if anything, they were just sleeping in a little bit more during the week, even if they were staying up a little bit late. So I, I thought that was really interesting as just sort of a, you know, peeking under the covers, so to speak, of like what's going on out there in the world. Um, well, and and peeking under the covers with COVID-19 has kind of been in your wheelhouse in other ways yeah. too, right? Uh, because yeah. of this task force on COVID-19 and and I, I think part of the title was Managing Sleep in a Pandemic. Yeah. So, so the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine is an organization. They're like the main scientific clinical organization of people who of behavioral sleep medicine. So that's the field of sleep where uh, people treat sleep disorders, but not necessarily with medication. So it's a lot of psychologists, nurses, social workers, and, and physicians are in there too, but the ones who also, in addition to medications, also do like behavioral treatments and things. So Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine, um, and people should know that, that like the main sort of jewel in the crown of behavioral sleep medicine is cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia, which is you know, extreme, it's the recommended first-line treatment for insomnia, and since insomnia is so common, there's a lot of insomnia people in this society. So anyway, so so the SBSM put together a COVID task force. They, they got a bunch of us together who were sort of seen as, um, you know, maybe leading voices in this area to say, all right, what should people be doing about sleep right now? Um, and it's written for... It's, it's mostly written for people who might be seeing patients because that's who's writing it. It's a lot of bunch of mostly psychologists writing it who are, who are sleep therapists for other people who might be seeing sleep patients, but also for people out there who are dealing with sleep problems. How do you wrap your head around it? So this article is free, 
um, if it's published in the journal Behavioral Sleep Medicine. And if you go, if you Google it and find it and you go there to the link, you'll see this paper is super short. It's like two pages long. It's like, well, yeah, we needed that to get it in the journal at the last minute. But if you look at the supplementary materials, there's actually the full paper is in there with with examples and like, okay, man, here's an example of a patient and, and they have kids and this is what they're struggling with. What should they do? So there's vignettes in there. There's also handouts for parents. There's like handouts for um, doctors who are on the uh, nurses who are on the front lines. Like, what should they do? Um, so there's all kinds of resources on there uh, and it's totally free. Um, all you just, you know, and I can, uh, I'm sure you could post a link and I can send it to you. Yeah, I've got the link right up in okay. front of me, as a matter of fact, and I'll make sure it's uh, in, on our website at uh, thesnoozebutton.com because uh, it is. It's fascinating. The handouts are amazing. So you do want to take a look at this thing because it's a yeah. great resource. So so two other things. So so I was talking about how there were these two studies that have been on my mind. There's the real world Singapore study, and then there's also this opposite of the real world in a computer brain study that, that I've been thinking about. But a couple of other things. One is the, this SBSM thing. I'm glad you brought that up because people hopefully could benefit from this. Um, I, it was, I, I should also, even though I was on it, I didn't lead it. The leader was a guy named Chuck Crew. Um, he is um, a psychologist who does sleep. He, did, he led this charge. Others, there were others involved. Um, you'll be able to see all the author, authors on here, like we all contributed. Um, but there's, there's also something else that happened in the last week or so that was really, really um, on the minds of a lot of people in sleep, and and that was the death of Bill DeMint. Um, so for your listeners who don't know, uh, Bill DeMint often has the title of the father of sleep medicine, um, and he definitely deserves that title. Um, he was there when they discovered REM sleep in 1950s and when he was a student in Nathaniel Kleitman's lab. Kleitman, I guess in that case, being the grandfather of sleep medicine, um, you know, setting up the first sleep clinic, creating the first sleep scientific society, the first sleep conferences. Like he, he drove the field and he was actually, um, you know, I've only been able to meet, I was only able to meet him a couple times. Um, but he was, he was an extremely dynamic person. We were very lucky as a field to have him be the person leading the charge. Um, the idea of sleep as a public health issue was something that he was doing decades before anyone else sort of took that mantle. And so, like, it was a real, you know, he, I mean, every important sleep award is named, is the Bill DeMent Award. You know, like, it's, it's you know, the, at Brown, they have DeMent Fellowships, and, and the Sleep Research Society has their DeMent Award, and the American Academy has their DeMent Award. Like, he was a major figure in the field. He really pulled the, the field up out and, and through, put it out into the world. And, um, I mean, he was, he was quite old and, and, um, you know, his, his health hadn't been great for a few years, but, um, it was definitely a big loss for the, for the field in the sleep field. Everyone in the sleep field felt it when it happened. Um, and, and I think, you know, if your listeners are interested in sleep, he wrote a, he wrote a bunch of books, but the one that I like the most, it's called the promise of sleep. Um, and it really tells the story of the of where the sleep field came from and what it was like back in the day. And and then we discovered this. And then when, when then we had this crazy idea, and that totally didn't work. But what we found was this, and this is why it's interesting. And he tells this great story. So I definitely recommend that book for people. 
Um, I, I'm going to throw one thing at you that uh, popped up for me as well, um, and and it was a study, and, and and I may be throwing you something that you haven't even seen yet, which would surprise me, but still. Um, I was looking at a study. The headline on the story yeah. is one-time treatment generates new neurons and eliminates Parkinson's disease in mice. Now, and and uh, I made sure that I mentioned the in mice part because I know that's a favorite of yours. Um, but this is a study out of the U, out of UC San Diego School of Medicine that was studying a protein called PTB. And what they found was by manipulating this protein, they could force the mice brains to generate new neurons and it would basically after a one-time treatment, knock out Parkinson's disease. The reason that I'm bringing up Parkinson's on a sleep podcast <laughs> is because of this stuff right here, which um, uh, your friend and mine, Dr. Mark Boulis at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto, put me on medication for Parkinson's to treat my restless leg syndrome. Now, I, this might be a question that is better uh, aimed at Richard Allen from Johns yeah. Hopkins. Yes. Uh, I, he's, I, he's, I already know the answer to this question is yes, but I'll do my best. Okay, good. Because my question becomes, if they can manipulate this protein in mice and knock out Parkinson's, could that also ha have an impact on restless leg? Um, but potentially. So, um... So I'm, I'm actually looking at the paper right now. I hadn't read it because it, it was a Parkinson's basic science paper and I don't read all of those. But, uh, so I'm looking at it right now. And so this, an interesting thing about Parkinson's disease that a lot of people may not know is, is actually what Parkinson's disease is. Is that sort of deep in the brain, there's, a, um, there's an area called the substantia nigra. Which, as, as most people could kind of guess, you, you know I, I love this idea of scientific-sounding words that are actually kind of banal and silly. Uh, but the, substan <laughs> the, the substantia nigra, like if you think about it, substantia nigra, it's black stuff. Yeah. Um, it's the black stuff in the brain. And the reason it got that name is because usually we call the brain gray stuff, right? It's gray matter. Um, and and that's the, the, the cell bodies are gray-colored. But in the substantia nigra, they're kind of blackish. And in the substantia nigra, um, there are cells that produce dopamine. And most people have heard of dopamine. They usually think about it in terms of reward systems or energy level and stuff. But dopamine also plays really critical roles in muscle movements. And another thing, dopamine is a neurotransmitter. Neurotransmitters, it's like salt. You use salt on lots of different things. It does lots of different things in different foods. Um, it's not just for making spaghetti sauce. Like it's also for making tacos. Like you can you use it everywhere. So sure. so dopamine is like that, where it has lots of different functions. Um, one of them is controlling muscle movement. So what Parkinson's disease is, it's basically the cells in the substantia nigra start dying, and um, they stop eventually stop producing dopamine. And um, it used to be that the main treatment for Parkinson's was just supplementing dopamine. Um, you can't give people dopamine, it won't cross it to the brain. You have to give them a drug that will that will create more dopamine in the brain, but then that causes side effects. So the newer drugs sort of boost dopamine levels in general, in, in, in especially in terms of muscle movement. So that's what that's that's essentially what Parkinson's disease is, is the substantia nigra starts dying. 
for, for whatever reason. Sometimes it could be autoimmune. Sometimes it's just aging. There's, there's all kinds of, sometimes it's genetic. There's all kinds of reasons why. Now, the reason why um, restless, restless legs is treated with low-dose Parkinson's medication is, it, is because it looks like, at least for, for a bunch of people with restless legs, again, Dr. Allen would know way better than me. He's like the world's leading expert in this, and I just dabble because it's not my main area. But the idea is that some of these pathways are overlapping, and by treating it, and, and we're, you're talking about like a fraction of a dose of what you would give a Parkinson's patient, but it seems to work along that same neuromuscular sort of pathway, but that's also why the main side effects are like the side effects of maybe having too much dopamine. Um, so anyway, so getting back to your question, if they could, so, so what I'm looking at here in the paper, again, I'm just browsing it, like live while you just brought it up. Um, so, and you know, there's lots of acronyms that I don't even know how to pronounce on this one, but it looks sure. like the, it looks like the story is, um, it's using cells called astrocytes, which are not neurons. So there's other cells in the brain called astrocytes that have other functions in the brain that, that sort of people, you know, like you could just, you could just think of them as sort of like helper cells in the brain that do other stuff that sort of assist the neuron. Um, but what um, what it's doing is it it seems to be converting some of these because you don't grow new neurons, but you could potentially create new astrocytes and, and like you could there's there's a whole field of like astrocyte research. So um, and also astrocyte um, site C Y T like cell like cyto whatever astro it looks like it's like star shaped. Um, so astrocytes. Um, and so it looks like what they're doing is they can convert um, these astrocytes into a functional neuron um, and, and have them change shape and, and change function. Um, again, not reading this in super amount of detail, but if the problem is that the cells are dying, but there are other cells in the area that you can now deputize um, and turn them back into and turn them into a replacement for some of the cells that died, maybe what you could do is you could potentially reverse this process. Um, if whatever caused the cell to die in the first place isn't effective anymore, or whatever, blah, 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 blah. But as a proof of concept, this is super cool. Um, also, from a sleep perspective, I wonder, you know, you, you mentioned the glymphatic system and this idea that the brain exists also in a 24-hour day, that there are things that happen in terms of the brain, and there's actually a whole world of astrocyte sleep research. Uh, I can give you some names of, of, of colleagues who do this sort of work, but we're looking at the function of astrocytes in sleep is actually also really interesting in terms of lots of different types of maintenance functions. So I wonder, I mean, if I were, if I were um, uh, talking to these people and, and, and wanted to do a human study on this in particular, I'd be interested to see if, if this effect happens during sleep. Um, and if they, and if you could optimize it in that way. Hmm. So much interesting. See, now I have to put a call into Richard Allen. So I, I, <laughs> I have more investigating to do, but I saw yeah. it and I thought, Oh, next time I talk to Michael, I have to ask him about this. Um, cause yeah. there are so many of those, these things where you're researching X and it turns out you found a cure for Y, you know, yeah. and, and those things sometimes happen by accident. And I wondered when I saw it and I realized that, yeah, I'm on a super low dose Parkinson's medication for my RLS. I thought, okay, well, wait a minute. Let's investigate this further. Yeah. So 
Yeah, thank you for uh, making me feel like I, I haven't completely gone off the deep end, and now i got to go ask other people. I love this. Listen, uh, the reason that Michael is here is because he doesn't have time to do his own podcast, and so he comes <laughs> and hangs out with me now every week, and I'm super grateful for the time, um, and there's always so much stuff to learn every time I chat with you. I'm so grateful for uh, you having turned me on to uh, Dr. Dana Johnson. Isn't she awesome? She's fantastic. She's amazing, but all these people seem to have one connection in common, <laughs> and that's you. And so I'm super grateful you can make time. And, and thanks no, for joining always. us, Michael. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you next time. There you go, Dr. Michael Grandner. A link on our website at thesnoozebutton.com for the information that I was talking about with Michael. Plus, uh, all the stuff from our chat with Eric as well and his uh, Wired video that was a big hit for people as well. Uh, tons of information there for you on our website. Uh, all the uh, back episodes are there. Uh, subscribe buttons for both the regular length edition of the show and the Snooze Button Express, which is a nine-minute version of each and every episode. We're catching up on the production of those episodes. We're still way behind, but we're adding new episodes as quickly as we can to hopefully get caught up to where we are in the present time. Also, a contest page there, a way to leave a question for our panel of sleep experts. You can rate and review the show and even support with a donation to help keep it commercial free, too. It's all at thesnoozebutton.com. Until we get together next week, my name's Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you? 